Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you guys. And uh, I say this every time Ben lets me come up and preach, but it is a joy just to be on this end of things instead of uh, always being in the background in the tech booth there. And uh, I got to say, this is the first time in a long time I've sat up near the front. And to hear you guys sing was unbelievable. I loved hearing the powerful chorus of God's people hitting me in the back of the head. I don't usually hear it from back there, but that was wonderful. So thank you for the blessing of that this morning. But as, uh, as we go to God's word, as you may see on the screen already, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. So turn there with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 6. And as you get there, many of you are going to see that uh, we're going to be covering the peculiar story of a familiar character known as Gideon. And I have no doubt that if you've been in church for any length of time whatsoever, you've probably heard some sermon taught on Gideon. And and I'm pretty confident that if you've heard a sermon or a Bible uh, study taught on the story of Gideon, most likely the preacher spent most of his time talking about Gideon's fleece. And after fleecing out the passage, no doubt he tried to convince you that whenever you have some major life decision to make, what you should be doing is pitching a cup of water on whatever dusty kitchen mat you can find laying around, and then you should trust God to morph into some magical chamois and dry it up to help you make your decision. But such a thing... Such a sermon does a disservice to the story of Gideon and it wholly misses the point of what God wants to get across. And worse than that, it leaves you with nothing but a bunch of dank kitchen mats sitting around your house while you sit there paralyzed in fear to make any of life's decisions. And that it is not God's intent for this passage. And this morning, while I preach on Gideon, although I won't cover the entirety of his story, What we're going to see this morning is we're going to see the severe affliction of God's covenant special people. And we're going to see God's calling to service of a hero, of a rescuer for those people. And what we're going to witness is a battle that is so much more real to you and me today than some military skirmish that happened 4,000 years ago. But before we get into it, what I'd like to do, it's a long section of scripture, verses 1 to 32, but the greatest authority on this stage this morning is God's word and not me. And so I want to still read this passage this morning, and and it's easy, right? We read to our kids at night because it puts them to sleep. It's easy when somebody's reading to you to check out mentally and walk away, but I'm asking you not to do that this morning while I read this passage, but look at it with me and consider God's word. And as we go to it really quickly, what I want to say about this, this is a narrative passage. It's telling the story of somebody, and you can think of this just like you would a stage play. There are acts and there are scenes to Gideon's story. And we're going to be covering act one, scenes one through three, and we'll break those up. And hopefully that kind of helps you digest this long passage. If you would, if you're able, please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it. Chapter six, verse one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. 
They would camp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and with their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Act 1, scene 2, verses 11 through 24. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, which, by the way, I spent all week trying to figure out how to pronounce that name, and I'm confident nobody else pronounces it correctly, so I'm not going to either. The Abiezrite. Uh, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house, and he prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an afal flour. The meat he put into a basket, and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Uh, Act 1, scene 3. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And the, uh, build the altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. 
Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early the next morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the story of Gideon. God, thank you that your word stands true today just as it did thousands of years ago. God, I ask that you'd speak to us this morning in a powerful way that each of us would leave here changed and affected by having encountered your voice in this place. Speak through to me this morning, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. That is a long passage of scripture, and we're going to do the best we can to digest it in about the next 35 minutes. What I want to say is, if you have read the book of Judges at any length, no doubt you have probably noticed the frequency with which the people of God, his special and his covenant people, violate his covenant and then sin against God and then suffer for their sinning. And we watch this downward spiral of the Israelites. It's like this sick merry-go-round ride that leaves us nauseous at the end of it. We see over and over and over again in the book of Judges that Israel sins against God and they commit evil acts. They violate his covenant. Then God lets them suffer for their sin. After they suffer for their sin, they cry out to God for rescuing. Then God rescues them and then what do they do? They go and they sin yet again and violate his covenant again. And it's nauseating. And we read these passages sometimes in utter astonishment like what is going on with these people of God? What is going on with this downward spiral? And our passage this morning is no different. If you look at verse one of our passage, our scripture says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And God therefore handed them over to suffer the consequences of their sin. And what is the consequence of their sin? What's the consequence of Israel's sin? It's not an active consequence. God did not send the Midianites against them. All God had to do was remove his divine hand of protection. He said, you have separated yourself from my covenant. I am going to step back and separate myself from you. The nations around Israel were already hostile to them. So it was nothing for those nations to now move in, and without God protecting them, the Israelites suffered. And we see in our passage this morning that the result of God's distance from his covenant people was the utter destruction of the Israelites. Read with me in verses 4 and 5. We see that the Midianites, the 
Amalekites and the people of the east would encamp against Israel and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. They would leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep and no ox or no donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. What we see in this passage is that the destruction of Israel was so severe that it chased the Israelites from their homes. They were petrified to sleep in their own beds. They could not harvest their own fields. They were so petrified that they couldn't even trade in their marketplaces, but they were driven to caves and living in mountains. The utter destruction of Israel caused them to come to a complete stop in the midst of their world as they faced the reality of honestly their impending extinction. You see, harvest time was a particular desperate time for people in that day and age because when you harvested that was the food that would sustain you through the winter and when these people would come and ravage Israel they would come right at the time of harvest they would let Israel plant the crops water the crops labor over the crops and then right when it's time to harvest and reap the food and the benefits these people would come in and devastate Israel and steal everything they had to survive on. And Israel stands paralyzed. We're going to go extinct. And what we see in verse 6 is that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of their suffering. You see, the people of Israel were hopeless and they were helpless. And they were looking for any sliver of light, of hope, to pierce through the dark the dank darkness of those caves that they were sitting in, paralyzed in fear. So they cried out to God. And I don't know about you, but when I cry out to God, I don't know if you've experienced this, major trials where we feel hopeless and helpless and God, I need you to show up, otherwise I ain't gonna make it through today. And when I get to those moments and I'm like, God, come help, my hope is that he is going to send some kind of reprieve, that he's gonna move in a mighty way and save me in the midst of my trial, right? And I think the Israelites were hoping the same thing. But what did God send to the Israelites? He didn't send them a mighty warrior at first. He didn't save them from their trials at first. The first thing he sent them was a prophet. And I don't know about you, but it's almost on the pages of scripture. I can see the Israelites' shoulders slump. And them going, oh, come on. Because prophets usually showed up on the scene when God wanted to have the proverbial come to Jesus talk with his people. It usually was not a good thing when you had a prophet showing up because you've done something dumb. And that's what, that's what Israel's facing right here. God sends a prophet, and this prophet was no different. Read what the prophet said. Verses 8 through 10. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell." 
but you have not obeyed my voice. This prophet shows up on the scene and rather than bringing a little bit of hope, he brings a Louisville slugger and kind of tags him upside the head. This is what I have done for you as the Lord your God, but you have not obeyed me. Now take a moment with me and consider the absolute contrasts between the Israelites' two enemies. The prophet talks about Egypt. Egypt was an enemy of the Israelites who enslaved them for 400 years, and now they face a new set of uh, enemies, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east. Think about this. On one hand, the Egyptians, when Israel was enslaved, the e Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world. They had a massive army that was organized in its ranks with generals and commanders, unified in their command, able to strike at any enemy with a strong and a mighty hand. They had a king who was revered as a god, and he wielded his authority with a divine-like power as he commanded this empire that he oversaw. You see, the, the military of Egypt, they had resources to make mighty weapons of war with which they could strike at their enemies. They were a force to be feared in the world, to be sure. That was the Egyptians. And then, then we have the Midianites, the Amalekites, and what Scripture says are the people of the East. And that's really kind of nondescript. Let me tell you who the people of the East were. They were a marauding band of desert nomads. If you've ever seen a map of Israel, what you have on the west is the Mediterranean Sea. What you have on the east is barren desert. There's not resources for mighty weapons. There's not a lot of food. There's not a whole lot of much of anything. This was a marauding band of nomads that roamed through the desert encamping in tents wherever they could figure out how to scrounge resources. That's the people of the East. What we see in Israel's new enemy is that they have no centralized structure. There are three separate groups of people all coming in and raiding Israel. There's no centralized structure. There's no organization in the ranks of their military. They don't have nearly the military prowess. They don't have nearly the military might that Egypt did. They don't have a king or an emperor who has nearly the authority or the power that Pharaoh commanded in Egypt. And yet what we see in Egypt, the Israelites bested their enemy, they fled Egypt, and they overcame. And then what we see with the Midianites is that Israel is utterly destitute and overrun by marauders, by desert nomads. That's like, that's like if you step into the ring with Muhammad Ali and you go toe-to-toe -to -toe when you take home the belt. Then when you get home, you step into the ring with your toddler. He gives you one gut check, takes you down. You drop, and he walks away with the belt, thinking he's something, right? And it's like, what's going on? How does that even work? What happened to Israel? You know what the difference is? The difference is God's presence. Because Israel did not overcome Egypt. Israel did not overcome Pharaoh. Israel did not conquer the mightiest nation in the world. God did, because he was with his people. And then Israel, 
separated from their God by their sin, fell to desert nomads. That is the difference. The sad truth of this saga that we see at the beginning of chapter 6 is that the Israelites were so blinded by their physical oppression that they wholly missed the spiritual battle raging among them. They missed the spiritual battle. Israel was an oppressed people, absolutely. Their oppression, their greatest oppression, did not originate outside of Israel, outside their national borders. Their greatest oppression originated in the core of their hearts, in apostate worship. And the worst reality is sometimes we're no different. Honestly, we read these passages and and we're astounded with Israel wondering, how can you be so obtuse? How can you be so blunt? But honestly, often we're the same way. And this is the first thing we need to see in our passage this morning. Focusing on our physical trials can cause us to miss our spiritual battles. Again, you and I, we look at the Israelites in astonishment, wondering, what are they doing? Over and over and over again, they're fighting these battles, but the battles are their sin. And they're suffering over and over and over again. And they're fixated on this physical trial, and they're wholly missing what God is doing in their midst. But yet, often, honestly, you and I are the same. If you really look over your last week or your last month, I'm confident you faced some trial. And I wonder if you honestly evaluate in the midst of that trial, did you fixate on the trial or did you fix your eyes on Jesus? Those trials come in many forms. Honestly, husbands. (laughs) Sometimes your wife feels like a trial. Getting on the last nerve, right? Wives, it's no different. Your husband bouncing on that last nerve like it's a weathered trampoline and you're just about to snap. Has that happened in the last week, in the last month that you've gotten on each other's nerves? Honestly, and and the only time you called out the name of Jesus in the midst of those arguments is the one you now got to repent for because it was the wrong motive and the wrong tone. Parents, if your kids are anything like mine, I love my kids. But man, if your kids are like mine, I know, I know you've experienced trials in the last week. And I don't know about you, but I kind of turn into David, calling down curses from heaven, like, send the lions, Lord. Lord, get them with the arrows, like, cut them with the sword, God, get them. That's when I really start to sound like Jesus in the midst of those trials, and I'm thinking, oh, you foolish and wicked generation, how long must I bear with you? That's the only time I quote Jesus in those trials. How about at work? Some of you are pulling up to work during the week, sitting in your car trying to give yourself a pep talk. I can make it through today. I can get through this. It's only eight hours. Then you walk in there and and you spend half the day, honestly, daydreaming about your quitting story. Like, oh, they're going to remember the day Terry quit. It's coming with a slap and I'm going to take my stand and you'll never get somebody as good as me, right? And and you storm out, oh, they're going to remember when Terry quit. And honestly, in the midst of these trials that each one of us face at one point or another, 
Question is, are we fixing our eyes on Jesus, wondering, Lord, what are you doing in my midst as I, as I work through this trial? Or are you focusing on the worldly, physical trial that's just dead in front of you? Because honestly, if we'll, if we'll just take a moment and fix our eyes on Jesus, we will look more like the refined gold of heaven than some worn out, overworked lump of clay. If we can fix our eyes on him in the midst of the trials. Then we come to act one, scene two. Let's return to our passage. And our author carries us into this next scene and, and we encounter a most unlikely hero in a most unusual way where we are, we are told he is greeted by the angel of the Lord. However, what we're gonna come to see as we dig into this passage is that neither of the men we see in this part of the story are who they at first seem to be. Look with me at, at uh, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now I don't have, I don't have a lot of time this morning to go into Christophanies and, and things like that in the Old Testament, but suffice it to say that it is commonly held that this is not just some angelic created being that appeared to Gideon in the midst of this wine press, but this was in fact the Lord Jesus Christ himself for a moment stepping down into his creation to encounter Gideon in the midst of his fear in this wine press. This was Gideon's encounter with the Lord Jesus. And when we find Gideon, he's busy hiding in a wine press. And he's beating out whatever, whatever scraps of wheat his family has managed to hide and save back from, from the Midianites. And when we read this, there's kind of a difficulty in translation because it says he was beating out the wheat in a wine press. And unless you lead a life like totally different from mine, I'm going to guess neither of us have ever threshed our own wheat and neither of us has stepped foot inside an ancient Near Eastern wine press. So let me kind of go into these a little bit for you so we can get a picture of how this angel found Gideon, our hero. So Gideon is threshing out wheat. Now threshing out wheat, beating out wheat, uh, was typically done on the top of a hill. It was done on the top of the hill because what uh, they would do is they would toss the wheat in the air uh, and uh, when the wheat was tossed in the air, a breeze would come and it would carry away the chaff. The chaff is all the stuff that is not edible. It's the junk from the wheat. And then the wheat was heavy enough that it would fall back to the ground. The breeze would carry away the chaff. The wheat would fall back to the ground. They do that enough times. Now they got a good pile of wheat laying in front of them. Ancient Near Eastern wine presses were not built on the top of a hill, but they were actually built down in valleys or at the bottom of a hill so that they could produce their wine. And I won't go into the whole way they produced wine, but that's where they were built, is in the bottom of a hill. And that's, that's kind of an unlikely place to be threshing out wheat, an activity which required wind because the bottom of a hill likely had none. So what we get is we get Gideon doing this task that should be up on a hill with a breeze down in a wine press. And we see Gideon here depicted as the poster child of fear. And at some point while he's doing this, he recognizes that he's not alone. And what followed is Gideon's life-changing encounter with God. And the Lord's greeting 
for Gideon, it's both ironic and prophetic. Read with me again how the angel greeted Gideon. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now up to this point, it was painfully clear to Gideon, and it should be to you and I as well, that the Lord absolutely was not with Israel. They were overrun by the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east. The Lord was not with Israel. It should also be painfully apparent to us, because it was to Gideon as well, that Gideon is not a mighty man of valor. In fact, Gideon was hiding from the mighty men of valor who wanted nothing more than to end his scant and timid existence. If they would have found him in that wine press, they would have killed him, taken his wheat, and thought nothing of it. Gideon's hiding from these men, the poster child of fear. And therein lie the ironies of this angel's greeting. But the angel's greeting was also prophetic. And that although the Lord was not right now with Israel, the Lord would be with Israel. And he would be steadfast for his people, Israel. And although Gideon was not a mighty man of valor, he would be a mighty man of valor. But not because of his strength, but because of the strength of God through him. See, Gideon's beginning is not the sort that you see in a typical hero story. He's not only full of fear and cowardice, but... He's also blind to Israel's sin. And in his own heart, he is impenitent towards God. He is not repentant of his own sin when God encounters him. Listen to the response he gives this angel. Verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he's given us into the hand of Midian. In other words, what Gideon is saying here, the way he's responding to the angel, it shows the attitude of his heart. Gideon is not only saying, Lord, it is not true. You are not with Israel. He's placing the blame squarely at God's feet, but he's saying, We have nothing to do with this. He is disregarding Israel's own part that they played in their destruction. By his own words, Gideon shows that he's not only failed to acknowledge Israel's sinful role, but again, he places that blame at God's feet. God, you're at fault. You're a bully. You could save us because history shows it, but yet you're letting us suffer. That's what Gideon says. For Gideon's sake and for ours too, the reality is that when God calls us to himself, he never leaves us quite where he found us. God takes us from our sinful, sick condition and draws us into peace with himself where we are molded and shaped into vessels for his good purposes. And that's what's true in Gideon's case as well. God goes on to assure Gideon in our passage that he's going to go with Gideon, that he is going to fight on Gideon's behalf. God will give him the strength to conquer the Midianites, but not yet. Not yet. See, because Gideon first has a different battle to fight. He has a battle to fight within himself. 
Look back at our passage and see what happens next. Verses 15 through 24. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. Verse 19. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an afah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. You see, throughout Gideon's encounter with God, we see Gideon go from his state of impenitence, blaming God for his predicament. We see him go from that to one of reverence and worship of who God is. Throughout this encounter, we see Gideon go from blaming God to questioning God to testing God and ultimately to worshiping God. And he fought this battle within himself and his encounter ends with him building an altar to the Lord having experienced a renewed peace from God. And, and this is important for us. Let's not, let's not miss this part. Gideon's peace began once he fixed his worship. That's when his peace started. This is the second thing we see in our passage that we need to take home today. Before we fight the battles around us, we must fight the battles within us. You see, although God was calling Gideon to fight a battle against the hordes of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, Gideon could not fight that external battle until he first fought the internal battle within himself, that spiritual battle that was raging within his own heart. And it was a battle of misplaced worship, of apostate worship of false gods. Before he could ever be God's vessel to save Israel, he first had the right to worship in his own heart. And I wonder, as you, as you sit here this morning and consider maybe some of the battles that you've been facing in your own life, the ones which seem so, so insurmountable that maybe you even doubt God's goodness or his justice, as you consider these, I wonder, has your attention been diverted from the battle that is raging 
within you because you've been so fixated on the battle that's raging around you. See, because there's a battle raging inside of you and it's one that requires you to move from questioning God to worshiping God. Maybe, maybe it's a sin issue and it requires you to move from a state of impenitence to a state of renewed worship and peace with God. Let's move on to scene three. You see, it wasn't long before God called upon his unlikely hero to fight his very next battle. Our passage tells us that it was that very night that God called upon Gideon to abolish the pagan worship in his clan. Listen to what God says. Read again with me in verses 25 and 26. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there, with stones laid into order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. In other words, what God said to Gideon in that moment, what God commanded Gideon to do, he says, not only will you tear down these false gods, not only will you raise them, and when I say raise, I mean R-A-Z-E, not R-A-I-S-E. R-A-I-S-E means to build up. R-A-Z-E, raise, means to tear something down and to abolish it. See, God was calling Gideon to raise these idols from his clan. Not only will you abolish their worship, not only will you tear them down, but you're going to set my altar on top of their desecrated remains so you can use them as kindling for worship to me. What God was saying is my name, my glory, is far superior to any other idol that Israel can chase after. Don't just tear them down, burn them to worship me. That's what God called Gideon to do. See, our, our passage shows us that by this act of obedience, because Gideon does go on and obey God, and he does exactly what he was commanded to do, not only does Gideon cleanse his clan of pagan worship, but he cleanses his family of pagan worship. Look back at our, our passage, verse 26. Our passage tells us that Gideon's own father was responsible for tending these idols, for offering the sacrifices, for tending the altar. His own family built the altars on their family land. What God is showing Gideon is that before Gideon can be used as God's vessel to save Israel first, he must fix the apostate worship, not just present in his own heart, not just present in his own clan, but that is generational in his family. Read with me again. What happens when Gideon responds in obedience? Verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the asher beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? 
And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. What we see in this passage is the absolute desecration of these cultural gods which produced immediate backlash from his clan, from his town, from his kinsmen. Immediate backlash. And here again is another irony in our story. You see, Israel was guilty of apostate worship. To worship anybody other than God was a sin punishable by death. Yet these men who are worthy of death because of their sin of apostate worship are now leveling a capital charge against Gideon and saying that he should die for writing the worship which they should have never abandoned in the first place. Those who should die for their sin are the ones leveling the death sentence against the one who is trying to raise them back to life and bring them back to God. See, Gideon's troubles didn't stop when his obedience to God began. It's not when his troubles stopped. Life didn't all of a sudden look like a rose garden or smell like a rose garden. Life didn't get all of a sudden grand. But in fact, when, when he was obedient in the midst of a sinful world around him, Gideon's troubles got worse. And here's what we see in all of Gideon's saga, this entire passage. It's all summed up in this. God's first concern is not our physical peace. It's our spiritual welfare. I'm not saying God doesn't care about our physical peace. God absolutely does care for you physically. But that's not his first concern. God's first concern is our spiritual welfare. And again, I'm going to ask, how often might we admit, are we like the Israelites? And when the trials of this life descend upon us, we so often cry out, Lord, help. We look immediately for physical reprieve instead of looking to Jesus to find out what he is doing in our lives. What spiritual battle is taking place in our midst? We get fixated on that physical. Honestly, but Jesus set for us a better example. See, in Luke 22, Luke recounts Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is facing just ahead of him, the greatest trial in life that one can face. He is about to be tortured and crucified on a Roman cross. And yet in that Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus do? He prays, not my will, Lord, but yours. Jesus took his eyes off of the physical trial that was right in front of him and he fixed them on God and heaven and he caught wind of the spiritual battle that was taking place. And that was a spiritual battle Jesus could not afford to miss for the sake of the salvation of the world. Jesus set for us a better example. And today... What I think we need to ask ourselves in this room is, how is my worship? A spiritual battle is taking place in my midst. Lord, as I experience these physical trials, what are you really doing spiritually in me? 
I wonder, is there a sin issue that needs to be rooted out that God is trying to work on you with? I wonder, maybe, maybe there's not a specific sin issue that God's trying to resolve, but maybe God is trying to refine you like precious gold and like precious silver to make you ever more Christ-like for his service in the trials that you're facing this morning. I wonder, can you ask yourself, have I established some worldly idol in my life that needs to be raised? Has something captured the affections of your heart and taken your, your eyes off the one who guards your very heart, life, and soul? I think far too often we Christians are guilty of relegating worship to a moment in time on a Sunday morning when we come and we hum a little tune and we give maybe just a Baptist's raise of the hands. We don't go too high, maybe just right here, right? And that's worship. And then we go back out into the world, into the reality of life, leaving behind worship for our Sunday morning experience. We go back out into the world where the idols of this world captivate our hearts all over again. See, though we profess to worship God, I think often we fail to live our lives as Paul declared in Romans chapter 12 as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God because that is our true spiritual act of worship. You and I must also recognize that God has called us to be instruments of his righteous work in this world. And God, in his grace, will not leave you where he finds you. But if you'll fix your eyes on him, he's ready to do a refining work that will prepare you for his good purposes. You see, he brought us from death to life. He brought us from hell bound to heaven held. And the work God is doing in us now to ready us for his service and for his glory. Get this. We must fervently pursue lives of worship. Because worship is not just a moment in time, but worship is the very atmosphere 